Alright, thanks very much, and uh, I hope you're still awake. I, I barely am, to be honest. Uh, so this is a presentation devoted to Latin Christian Europe, and surely there is no better way of starting a presentation on this topic than by quoting Dante's Divine Comedy. So this bit right here is from the Paradiso. The context, roughly speaking, is that Beatrice prophesies the coming of a future ruler of mankind, and is supposed to arrive before, before quote, January is unwintered through the hundredth of a day which men neglect, or which men neglect below, which is a slightly more literal translation. And this might seem cryptic to us, but to Dante's contemporaries, it was pretty clear what he was talking about. It's a reference to the fact that the average year in the Julian calendar, which is, of course, 365 and a quarter days, is not exactly the same as a tropical year, which for medieval purposes can be defined as the interval between two vernal equinoxes. There's a difference here which amounts to, roughly speaking, a day every 131 years. That's a correct value for the Middle Ages. And this has some troubling consequences. It means that the equinox and the solstices migrate towards the beginning of the year. They drift over time. And of course, this means that January, January will be unwintered eventually. But there's also a more serious consequence, which has to do with the calculation of Easter. So Easter, as you all know, is the first Sunday. It's supposed to be the first Sunday after the first full moon to fall on or after the vernal equinox, and for medieval purposes, for the purpose of Easter reckoning, this date of the vernal equinox was fixed on the 21st of March. That's the canonical date of the vernal equinox. It was accepted as such throughout this period, but it migrates over time. And in Dante's time, the correct date would have been the 12th of March. So whenever this full moon, which is the reference full moon for Easter, falls between the 12th of March and the 21st of March, this will essentially mean that the church celebrates Easter in the wrong month. And this occurs uh, with an increasing frequency over time. And it's not the only problem that plagues the medieval ecclesiastical calendar. The other problem has to do with the way this full moon I just mentioned was calculated. Uh, for this purpose, the church used a 19-year cycle. And this 19-year cycle was typically represented in medieval calendars by means of the so-called Numerus aureus, a golden number, it's just a number from 1 to 19, and by placing it next to a particular date in the calendar, you can signal that this date will be the seat of a new moon in uh, a particular year of this 19-year cycle. So as you can see from this uh, table here, there are 235 golden numbers, which are distributed across the Julian calendar, and this number, of course, is predicated on the notion that there's an equivalence between 19 years in the Julian calendar and 235 lunations, or lunar months. Uh, this equation will give you, you know, a, an estimate for the relevant parameter, which is the mean synodic month. And again, we have a discrepancy, which in this case amounts to 22 to 23 seconds per month. And this will accumulate over time uh, to the extent that after about three centuries, we have an error of one day. Now, if you take into account that this whole cycle had been put in place around 300, then you can imagine that in Dante's day, the discrepancy between reality and ecclesiastical computation was in the area of three, sometimes four days. And that means that in many years, uh, we celebrate Easter not on the first Sunday after the full moon, but on the second Sunday. So we have an error of one week. And of course, there were cases when these two errors compounded and joined forces. Here's an interesting source from the late 15th century, a calendar published by Johannes Regiomontanus, the famous astronomer. And this is an astronomically enhanced calendar which he published in his own printing house in 1474. And there's this page which just gives you uh, a juxtaposition between the date of Easter as it should be celebrated, astronomically speaking, and the way it's celebrated by the church, foreseeably, because he looks into the future. This is a 57 period, 
a 57-year period and he points out that during those 57 years there will be 30 occasions when Easter falls in the wrong week or the wrong month. So we have errors of seven years, of seven days in some cases, of 28 days in others, and then you have these extreme cases, quite a few of them, uh, where the discrepancy is 35 days. And this was regarded as a huge problem, as an unbearable state of affairs, and we have many, many uh, references, many quotations, many expressions of discontent and embarrassment about this fact. In fact, this term, scandalous error, uh, I just nicked from Pierre Dailly, who in 1411 uh, wrote a treatise in which he talks about the scandalous error and erroneous scandal uh, that besets and, and embarrasses the church when it comes to calendrical reckoning. Just to give you a flavor, there's one of my favorite quotations from Roger Bacon in 1267, where he writes that the corruption of the calendar is unbearable for any wise man, horrible to any astronomer, worthy of ridicule from any computist, which is why all those educated in astronomy and in the computers and in such things are amazed that such abominable falsity is maintained. And he goes on to talk about the infidel philosophers, Arabs, Hebrews, and Greeks, who live amongst Christians and shudder at the stupidity which they discern in the ordering of time used by the Christians in their feasts. Now this idea that the church is subject to ridicule from unbelievers is a very common trope which, which crops up time and again in these medieval sources. And usually it's just the Jews who are being singled out as the culprits here who are having fun at the church's expense because they realize that the Christians celebrate Easter at the inappropriate time. Here's another example from 1488, Paul of Middleburg, who exclaims that all too great is the shame caused by the insults that those perfidious and obstinate Jews and the people of other sects level against us Christians because of this error. And he goes on to say, but woe is us, the calendar has now been drawn into such great error that the error is not only noticed by the learned, but also by sailors and for shame, simple working girls. There's another, uh, there's another level here, another reason why this state of affairs is so unbearable, the more this discrepancy grows, the more noticeable it becomes to the simple lay folk, the simple ordinary church-going population, and this, of course, perceived to, in the long run, undermine ecclesiastical authority. So there were many good arguments to do something about this problem, to reform the calendar, at least eventually, and that's the part that we all have heard about it's the Gregorian reform of the calendar of 1582. This is the year when finally a new calendar was introduced, which has two components, a solar component, a lunar component. The solar one is still the basis for the present-day civil calendar. But of course, this Gregorian reform has a long prehistory. As you've seen from these complaints, there are several centuries worth of debate and discussion and rumination and speculation as to how one might go about reforming the calendar. And of course, there's plenty of literature out there that tries to summarize the different stages in this discussion. But for the most part, pretty much all the literature uh, harkens back to this publication here from 1876. This is a very long article published by a fellow called Fernand uh, Kaltenbrunner. It's an article on the prehistory of the Gregorian calendar. And this is a very good article. It's still, like I said, the basis for the modern-day accounts in the literature, but obviously it can no longer be deemed adequate. It was published in 1876 at a time long before the study of medieval science or medieval calendars was even like you know a serious pursuit. And he was completely confined to manuscript sources he found in two libraries, the, the, the um, National Library in Vienna and the Vatican Library. So obviously, without you know, he can't be blamed for this, but obviously Carlton Brunner only knew a fraction of the relevant source material. Uh, for the past couple of years, I've been trying to identify as many relevant sources as possible for this medieval prehistory. And here are, I guess, 40 particularly important ones. The list could have been increased a little bit. 
so these are what I call key Latin sources on medieval calendar reform uh, for the period between 1000 and 1500. And to give you a sense of the progress this might constitute, the ones in red are the ones that Kaltenbrunner mentions. Not necessarily discusses, but these are the ones he mentions. All the ones in white you know, need to be integrated into the narrative. And it's exactly what I've been trying to do for the past couple of years. And uh, in what follows, I'll just try to focus on a few things I've learned from reading all these sources. Uh, one of the key questions for me is, why did this calendar reform never emerge during the Middle Ages? Why did it take until 1582 uh, for this calendar reform to come to fruition? What might have been some of the inhibiting factors, some of the problems that could never be properly solved or overcome uh, during this period from 1000 to 1500? I'll start with an astronomical point, and I'll make it very brief because it's not my, my main focus. There's an astronomical problem which concerns specifically the reform of the Julian calendar. Obviously, if you want to reform your calendar, you should have some vague notion as to the underlying astronomical parameters that you're trying to emulate by inventing new, for instance, inventing new interpolation rules. And when it comes to the tropical year, which is the relevant parameter for the Julian calendar, there was no clear consensus as to what this length of the tropical year might be. So here's just a list of different parameters that are being banded about in medieval literature. And uh, some of those are very old. They go back to Hellenistic astronomy. Others were added by Islamic astronomers. And yet others were, were thrown into the ring by later Latin authors. And there are many, essentially two different ways of dealing with this kind of variety. You can say that only one of those sources or authorities is right, and all others made some mistake in their determination. Or you might say that perhaps over time this parameter has changed. Maybe it was long, the year was longer in Ptolemy's day than it was in Albertani's day. And that indeed was a common response to this kind of diversity, not just in the Latin world, but also in Islamic astronomy. And there was there were a number of different models which are dealing with the motion of the eighth sphere, which were supposed to account for this change over time in the length of the tropical year, a type of model generally known as the access and recess of the eighth sphere. And this was quite well known in the Latin world and was often took, uh, taken as an, uh, an excuse why the reform of the calendar might be futile, because obviously if the length of the year keeps changing, inventing a new intercalation rule might be pointless or at least too cumbersome. And of course, depending on how you read this model, it might imply that over time uh, the vernal equinox will actually migrate back towards its original date. So this um, drift in one direction doesn't actually occur if you look at longer periods of time. This was certainly an inhibiting factor, but there are more important ones. And these are the factors I want to discuss in the, in the remaining minutes of this talk. And I think one key source that really drives home quite a few of the relevant points is this work known as the Exposition Calendarii Novi et Correctio Veteris. Well, it's known in the sense that this is the title in the only manuscript we have. It's a 71-page manuscript, which I was uh, lucky enough to discover last year. And it is really quite an important source in the middle of the 14th century. It comes divided into two books, book one comprises 41 chapters which are mostly devoted to solar astronomy, the solar calendar, the weekday cycle, and everything to do uh, with, with the Julian calendar. And the second book is all about the moon, roughly speaking. Uh, the text is anonymous in this manuscript. Uh, internally, it dates itself quite nicely to 1345. Fortunately, I've been able to find external evidence that makes me very confident that this, this work was written by a Dominican author named Johannes de Termis, 
And it was written in the context of a reform initiative that had been started around this time by Pope Clement VI, a pope in Avignon, who is essentially the first pope in, in history to actually make active steps towards a potential solution of this calendar problem. I'll try to give you a brief idea of how Johannes de Termes tries to deal with this issue. Uh, one interesting fact about Johannes de Termes' take on things is that he actually tries to determine the length of the tropical year independently, at least seemingly, of earlier sources. So he doesn't just take his values, the parameters, from some astronomical text, but he uses observations, ancient and modern, uh, to de derive this parameter independently. And his conclusion is that the equinoxes and solstices regress or drift towards the beginning of the year at a rate of one day every 120 years, a nice round number. And another feature of his approach that he focuses on the mean rather than the true vernal equinox. Uh, I'm not going to explain the details of why he does so. But he comes to the conclusion that over long periods of time, since the beginning of the calendar, this date of the vernal equinox had drifted from the 1st of April to the 14th of March. And that is, of course, a problem because this is no longer in alignment with the calendrical limits for Easter Sunday. And he realizes there are two options uh, that one might, might uh, choose in this particular case. Option one is to move the Easter limits to the current location of the mean equinox. So rather than making the 22nd of March the earliest possible date of Easter Sunday, uh, you move that to the 14th of March, and the same happens to the upper limit, uh, which goes from the 25th of April to the 17th of April. The other option is to try to move the equinox back to where it's supposed to be, and depending on how you look at it, uh, the reference date will be the 22nd of March, uh, which is the time of the Council of Nicaea, when the Council of Nicaea supposedly uh, invented these valid rules for how to reckon Easter. Uh, the other option would be the 25th of March, which according to Johannes de Termes, is the location of the vernal equinox at the time of Christ's incarnation, which of course is an important uh, fixed point for these kinds of discussions. The thing, of course, is if you want to move the equinox, you have to take days out of the calendar, right? That's the whole catch. And the question is, can you actually do that? You know, meddle with the civil calendar, uh, manipulate it. Doesn't that raise certain legal and administrative questions? And Johannes de Termes has a clever little way of making this idea palatable. He tells the Pope that, look, your predecessors, the emperors of Rome, did something similar. They also interfered with the calendar. So he writes that if the emperors Julius and Augustus, whose rule was only of this world, were allowed to increase certain months and shorten others, add to some and subtract from others in order to make a name for themselves, and if the whole world upheld this in their favor unanimously and without scandal, it will be even more listed for the vicar of Christ, i.e. the Pope, especially since he does not intend to do this in order to make a name for himself, but he does it for the benefit of the Most Holy Church, for which reason this must not offend anyone. You'd think that Pope Clement VI was sort of swayed by this kind of argument, but he had other advisors at his court who told him, oh, this is still a very fishy idea. So there's this anonymous uh, author who tells the Pope this is actually inconvenient to remove days from the calendar because once the calendrical calculations in the courts of the secular rulers are altered, there would be lawsuits concerning debts, obligations, contracts, and many other issues of this kind. So he's here referring to the fact that you have, that you have deadlines in economic and, and, and legal life which would be affected if you just subtract a couple of days from a particular year. And he goes on to say, perhaps rebellions would spring from this, such that if some princes are unwilling to alter their year, 
Other divisions between these princes and the church could follow. So he raises the specter of a rift between church and state. And of course, this is all based on 14th century reality, but the Pope didn't necessarily have the political clout necessary to meddle with the Julian calendar, over which the secular rulers also had some kind of stewardship. You know, it was implicated in Roman law, which was not necessarily uh, the sole remit of the church. And indeed, Pope Clement VI, as far as I can tell from the sources, was convinced by this particular objection. So when, in 1345, he writes to two very renowned French astronomers, uh, Jean de Mur and Firmin de Beauval, and asks them to come to Avignon to work out a calendar reform, he specifically only talks about the 19-year cycle and the lunar calendar, and leaves the Julian cal calendar to one side, because he was aware of the fact that the church that the 19-year cycle is not in any way relevant to civil life. It's a complete, uh, uh, it's a tool of the church for Easter reckoning, and the, the secular rulers could care less about this sort of thing. And that's why he stuck to reforming, trying to reform the 19-year cycle. So these two French astronomers come up with a whole different, uh, with a whole array of different approaches of how you might come up with a re reformed 19-year cycle. And yet, none of these suggestions was ever carried forward and put into uh, ecclesiastical law. And I believe the reason why this didn't come to fruition is because of a couple of objections that Johannes de Termis, the aforementioned author, raises in the aforementioned expositio, because he says, a solution that only reforms the 19-year cycle without also curing the Julian calendar is not valid. Because, well, first of all, it means that you still have this discrepancy between the vernal equinox and the current uh, boundaries for Easter. So you would have to move the Easter limits, and you, have, you would have to continue moving them because the vernal equinox keeps regressing. You know, you have made no precautions uh, to keep the vernal equinox from drifting. And the whole liturgical year would shift in relation to Lent and the mobile feast days, right? You have mobile feast days and immobile feast days, which stand in certain relations. And by altering the Easter limits, you also move all the other mobile feast days towards the beginning of the year. Certain feasts that had never been in Lent before will now fall in Lent and that will church, uh, change certain aspects of the liturgy. Uh, and you have to change the breviaries, the prayer books, and all the literature that describes how the liturgical year is actually supposed to work. Uh, there are other disruptions that occur. Uh, let me just mention one. There are certain times for when weddings are supposed to take place in the context of the medieval church. And one, one important period for, for getting, wedded, uh, getting, getting married is between Epiphany and the beginning of Shrovetide. And that time window would, would shrink considerably if you were, move, if you were to move uh, the, the boundary dates for Lent and Easter. And this kind of problem was actually discussed in medieval sources. So you have to completely disrupt and alter the liturgical year and that's not so palatable after all. So this is one dilemma we're looking at, right? You can leave the Julian calendar untouched. That might mean you don't have to, uh, you know, you don't get into trouble with secular rulers and with the economy and with deadlines, but it also means uh, that the liturgical year will be altered in ways that are a bit difficult to swallow. Uh, there are other factors involved, and these have to do with logistics. How, if you want to introduce a new calendar, how do you actually make sure this calendar uh, will be disseminated across Europe and will be put into use? And, and how can you make sure the old calendars and the old tables are silently discarded? Uh, this is a logis logistical problem that's, that's for the first time seriously looked at uh, 100 years after these events at the Council of Basel, everybody's favorite church council. Uh, the Council of Basel is important in this context of candle reform because it's the first time in church history that an entire commission is set up 
which has the sole purpose of trying to find ways of how to reform the calendar and the liturgical years in ways that are actually practical and palatable. And so between 1434 and 1437, roughly speaking, there was this commission who thought about these issues very hard and who essentially came up with two completely divergent proposals uh, as to how to reform the calendar and came very close to actually passing a law uh, on this particular topic. Uh, let me just give you a few samples of what they were talking about. So this is a, a, a reformed calendar which represents the first of these two proposals. This calendar was drafted by a fellow named Hermann Soest, who was a Cistercian monk from Westphalia, and he was really the driving force behind this entire calendar reform endeavor, if you so like. And this is a, a calendar which looks like a standard calendar, but it has different, uh, different sets of golden numbers, different Easter limits. It has a little reminder that in certain years you have to uh, omit like, the Julian by sextile day. So it has quite a few alterations. Now the problem is, you can draw up a new calendar, no problem, but you have to disseminate this thing somehow across the entire European continent or across the whole uh, area where the, where the Roman church has some kind of uh, uh, validity. And um, this might seem very difficult in a pre-print world. So how do you, you know, deal with this problem? And Hermann Soss had a very smart idea. Uh, rather than drawing up a calendar and passing that around and copying it thousands of times, why did you just draw up a decreed text uh, which describes the basics of this new calendar, and then you add to this decree text a series of mnemonic uh, words, mnemonic verses, which codify the key alterations that you have to make in order to turn old calendars into new calendars. So owners of existing calendars are expected to essentially make some additions in the margins to update what they already have on the page, uh, which keeps all the existing calendars in use after a couple of marginal uh, um, corrections. And this is essentially how it works. So you have this sequence of mnemonic words and you're told that you start the sequence on the 2nd of, second of January. This is all about correcting the golden number. And the first word is NOT, which stands for 19. So you put the number 19 next to the 2nd of January. The other information NOT contains is that NOT is a monosyllabic word and if a word is monosyllabic that means the very next date will also get a golden number. So you move on to the 3rd of January, you look up your word, it's OCTO, so you put an 8 next to the 3rd of January and OCTO has two syllables that tells you you have to skip a day. That's why the 4th of January has no golden number and you move on to the 5th of January and then you go on and on and you re repeat the sequence six times and you have all of a sudden filled up your existing calendars with a new set of golden numbers. And uh, oddly enough these golden numbers give you fairly accurate new moons at least for the Easter donation which is the only part of the, of the year that's really relevant uh, for Easter reckoning. The problem with this whole proposal uh, however, was that it, that it incurred the same criticism that Jean de Muir would have incurred in 1345. It's still uh, presupposed that the liturgical year was going to change because the Easter limits were supposed to be moved towards the, the current date of the vernal equinox and that raises the same concerns that were raised in 1345. So they tried something new. And this other proposal is enshrined in this decree of 1437, of which I recently discovered uh, the original draft, because there's a number of different versions of it. And this is a very ingenious proposal, which enables the church to keep all calendars in use and not even have to make any alterations to them. And that's how it was supposed to work. There are essentially two components to this. First of all, the, the, the targeted year was 1439. You just leave out seven days from a particular year. So in 1439, you move on from Pentecost Sunday to the 1st of June, and the seven days in between that are just omitted. And then you 
change the way you count the years in the 90 year cycle, which means you change the way the golden number is counted. You go, the, you go back three, day, uh, three years in your sequence. So uh, normally 1439 would have the golden number 15, but from now on you count the golden number 12 and then you move on in the traditional sequence. And this is a very interesting uh, compounding effect, uh, which can be demonstrated using this table. So let's just look at the first line up there. It's the first year of the 19 year cycle. Normally in that year, the Easter new moon would be the 23rd of March. Now you go back three years, and that has the net effect of changing that date to the 27th of March. So you actually move four days down. But then you subtract seven days, and you move seven days up, and you end up at the 20th of March, which is a net correction of three days. And if you compare that to the mean conjunctions as calculated with using the Alphonsian tables for the period in question, you will find that you have a pretty good match. So it's usually uh, the day of conjunction or the day after conjunction, which will be indicated by these new golden numbers, which are the old golden numbers, right? That's the funny thing. They just remain in the same, they retain their traditional positions in the calendar, and all calendars remain fit for use, and the liturgically it doesn't change. A very smart idea, and they also thought about how to uh, make this reform known, so they the, the, the decree contains this injunction that all the archbishops and bishops of the Roman Christian world must make sure the plan is publicized in all the churches uh, for a period between Easter and Pentecost in 1439, and they also talk about this problem, this old a hairy chestnut about the deadlines, loans, and contracts, they essentially decree that you just have to extend all the deadlines that are in place by seven days, and that should take care of the problem. There is, however, a catch. You have to make sure that this calendar keeps from deteriorating like the old calendar. And so you have to occasionally make further omissions of bisextile days. And this reform uh, assumes that the right way of doing things is to omit another day every three centuries. And this is indeed, roughly speaking, enough to keep the lunar calendar in place, keep the calendrical new moons close to the real new moons. But the Julian calendar deteriorates much more swiftly at a rate 2.7 times as fast as the lunar calendar. So the vernal equinox would keep regressing uh, uh, in this new calendar. And another problem is that omitting seven days, very convenient because it's a week, it doesn't interfere with the calculation of weekdays, but the actual discrepancy between the vernal equinox and the 21st of March in this period was closer to 10 days. So in fact, doing just, uh, just removing seven days will not move the vernal equinox back where it's supposed to be, the canonical date, which is the 21st of March. And the two main advocates of this reform proposal, Nicholas of Cusa, who needs no, who needs no introduction, and uh, Helen Sost, tried very hard to sell this reform. They, re they realized that they had to make certain astronomical compromises, but they included all, sometimes, you know, all sorts of sometimes rather uh, disingenuous arguments, why this might be acceptable. They tried to cast doubt on existing astronomical theories in order to make this more uh, acceptable. But it's clear to see why this um, reform was astronomically compromised and didn't see uh, the light of day was never came to fruition. The other reasons, of course, political problems. The Council of Basel was involved in a serious power struggle with the papacy at the time. But there's another big uh, dilemma that we're looking at here. You can have a, a conservative and simple reform, which will force you to make astronomical uh, compromises. Or you can have a very accurate reform, but then things get complicated. You have to, for instance, reform the lunar and solar components separately. That means you have to draw up new tables, and that once again uh, um, means you have to face this logistical problem, how to actually disseminate new tables across Europe. 
And so there are quite a few reasons why the Middle Ages might have been incapable of really uh, you know, reaching the finishing line as far as calendar reform is concerned. And these are, of course, also reasons why the Gregorian calendar was only uh, passed into law in 1482 at the height of the Counter-Reformation, when uh, the political clout of the papacy had changed, when print technology was available, when communication between the papacy and the Catholic courts of Europe was much more easy and, 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 and well entrenched. Um, but what's interesting to see is, we've talked about these two dilemmas that I mentioned earlier. How did the church in 1582, which horns of the dilemma did they actually uh, decide upon or did they favor? And it turns out they wanted a reform that kept the liturgical year in place, which means they had to remove days from the calendar. As you all know, 10 days were removed in 1482. And they also went with astronomical accuracy over simplicity. So the resulting calendar is actually rather complicated, especially if you look at the lunar component of it, which is rep represented by an ingenious little device known as the Lydian Epact. Lydian Epact uh, is a value uh, which, uh, which essentially can be assigned to every single day of the year. So every day of the, of the Julian year has a Lydian Epact value, and the 19-year cycle will, uh, will single out one of those Epact values as being associated with the new moon. Uh, but the thing is, the sequence of EPAC values in the 19-year cycle will change from century to century because you implement corrections both for the solar component and for the lunar component of the calendar separately. Um, obviously, I don't have the time to explain this in more detail. The point I want to make, and this is essentially my final point for today, is that even though there are reasons why this is an early modern reform, not a medieval reform, if you look at the scientific content, the parameters, and just the key ideas of how to go about making such a reform, all of it can be found in medieval sources, roughly speaking. And one way of visualizing this point is to just juxtapose these two tables. The one on the right comes from the Gregorian reform proposal. The one on the left comes from the aforementioned Expositio of 1345. Now, these are both EPAC tables, and I should say that the EPAC means something different in these two contexts, but the, the, the tables are still structurally identical. What they tell you is that the sequence of EPACs will change from time to time as you keep modifying your calendar to keep it up to date with the phenomena. And both of these authors, both, both of the authors behind these proposals realized that over long periods of time you will have 30 different sequences of EPACs which will only recur after a big cycle. And that's the big difference between these reformed calendars and the, and the traditional calendar. The traditional lunar cycle and Easter cycle of the church only comprised 532 years. If Johannes de Termis would have been successful with this proposal, this would have changed to 86,640 years. And the current Gregorian calendar has a cycle of 5.7 million years. And that really shows you that there's a, there's a price to pay for astronomical accuracy. And that's exactly what they found out the hard way during these centuries leading up to the Gregorian reform. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Philip. Very interesting and illuminated, uh, illuminating. <laughs> Questions, please. Very, very good paper. I, I was bemused at the start where you quoted, I forget who now, but the uh, idea that the um, Herod's, the uh, non-Christians were um, decrying the uh, inaccuracies of the uh, calendar. And it said Arabs, Hebrews, and Greeks. Yeah. Ooh, the Greeks, because the Byzantines maintained the Jewish calendar. 
Uh, I think this is just part of, of Roger Bacon's general rhetoric. So he wants to affect a general reform of learning in Western Christendom, and he always talks about uh, Greeks, Hebrews, and Arabs as possessing a degree of scientific expertise that the Latin church desperately needs. So it's actually being anachronistic, right? He often talks about the ancient Greeks and their philosophy, and he just keeps bringing them up. So obviously they were no longer around in 1276, or 67, I should rather say. Can I say, I mean, first of all, this was really fascinating. Uh, I, I have nothing to uh, point to remark on that, but let me just say that the current day Orthodox Jewish calendar, the 19-year rule cycle, is really off by a little bit, which has accumulated. Mm. And so once every 19-year cycle, Jews celebrate Passover more than 30 days after the Ephesians. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, there's nobody, uh, there's no pope to correct it. <laughs> If there's one rule in the Jewish calendar for which the entire machinery was constructed, it's the April rule of the Jewish to me, it's not clear. The, the, the Christian position, there is a very firmly established rule of the economic the very beginnings of Easter calculation. And you don't really have it in, in yeah. Jewish thought. It's not very clearly. There are a few passages here and there which are yeah. ambiguous and which don't clearly relate to the, certainly not to the rabbinic calendar that we have it now, doesn't really depend on the rule of the economic. Yeah. That's right. Built into the system. And there are medieval Latin Christian authors who point this out, that the Jews don't follow the rule of the equinox, which causes so much trouble for the Christian uh, uh, determination of Easter. That there will be a, a brilliant book collecting material that's um, to, I'd say, at least 30% nobody has seen before. So it would be wonderful to have all of these, this material collected in one book and explained. So it will be a really beautiful intellectual history of um, the intellectual thought that, that came to... Uh, on, in terms of the background of the Gregorian calendar reform. But I was wondering about how much do you go into the question in that book of why it was not implemented earlier? Because uh, when, when you address that question here, um, you, to, you try to explain it from the calendrical text that you're working on, and they have intellectual problems with it, which then feed into uh, potential problems of implementing it. Um, and at certain points in time, where you have enough, uh, enough information uh, which people are involved in it, and mm. uh, you can go outside of the textual box, if you like, and think about the bigger picture. And you, uh, you supposedly have to do that every now and again, where you have enough information, like for Clements VI, for the Council of Basel, and so on, so certain points in time, where you bring in the wider picture of politics and so on. Yeah. So how often do you, do you, can you do that? How often will you do that in the book? Or, uh, well, as often as possible. I mean, like the, there are many sources dealing with the problem, but they tend to be detached from actual politics. There are scholarly texts. Uh, who sometimes you know have these flights of fancy, uh, all the sorts of things you can do with the calendar. The stuff I talked about today are contexts where actual legal ramifications were taken into account, where popes and church councils uh, tried to reform the calendar. There are more examples uh, than the ones I mentioned. And of course, you have to look at, at, at the political 
uh, uh, situation at the time. There's also an issue that I didn't touch upon today, which is the fact there's also Greek church, and if you reform the calendar in the West, you have a schism between, the, the, in addition to the existing schism, you have a calendrical schism, uh, which is a bit hard to stomach, and, and that's a certain, you know, a certain degree of, of, of apprehensiveness about calendar reform. It's actually quite remarkable how brashly the Roman church in 1582 just sort of Dismissed the concerns of the of the Eastern Church. They just assumed the Eastern Church would follow suit. Of course, they didn't, right? And this is a schism that exists until today. Uh, these are all things I'm, I'm going to touch upon. But I think uh, my main contribution is to really look into the nitty gritty of the technical details, because these general remarks that obviously the Council of Basel didn't have the political uh, clout in, in in 1437. These have been made before, and of course you can flash them out. But it's nobody's ever properly identified uh, the frictions and all of the obstacles that an, an practical attempt to reform the calendar, uh, you know, uh, brought up. You know how you keep bumping up against problems as you actually think about the practicalities of it. Uh, yes. Oh, sorry. I think you were first. You'll be next. Thank you. Uh, fascinating talk. Um, when scholars talk about the date, the year of the crucifixion of Christ, there seems to be two options, either 30 or 33. Mm -hmm. Can you, by this system, work back as to which, you know, does, does this system or the system recommended by the scholars uh, try and fix that to either one of those two years? No, I mean, that's not the purpose of a calendar reform. Uh, of course, in the high Middle Ages, there were attempts to use the existing Easter cycle to solve that, that chronological problem. But the more you think about it, you will realize, as medieval uh, authors realized, you need to, first of all, to identify the Jewish calendar as it existed in the first century, or at the time of Jesus, and then use that as, your, as the basis for your chronological calculations. These days, the assumptions are usually that it was a visibility system still back then, so you need the, the date of the first visibility of the, of the new moon, and then count forward to Passover, and then you look for a year in which Passover coincided with a Thursday or Friday, depending on uh, how you read the Gospels, and that will give you, as you mentioned, the 3rd of April 33, or the 7th of April 30. And there are a few outliers as well, you know, some people think maybe 36 AD, others go back to 29, 29 AD. The honest answer is nobody knows. <laughs> yes, Jen. Uh, thank you, this is really fascinating stuff. I have a, a very possibly naive question as to whether any proposals were made that were completely radical. For example, to completely abandon the Easter cycle and just calculate Easter yeah. by actually calculating the date of true conjunction and... Absolutely. Plenty, yes, uh, plenty. I mean, astronomers love the idea of doing it properly astronomically without all these cycles. But from an ecclesiastical point of view, that wasn't uh, acceptable because the church had always been working with cycles. Cycles are easily intelligible. The, the tables remain, remain sort of clearly defined. And of course, astronomy progresses over time. New parameters are being established and you might have a disagreement between different factions amongst the astronomical community in scare quotes and how is the church supposed to react to, to, react to that kind of problem. So cycles are stable and hence preferable. And so I've, I'm, not I'm not surprised whatsoever that the church stuck with cyclical solutions which are difficult to pull off uh, but they avoid certain other problems. And there are other ways of being extremely radical about this. Uh, one recurring idea is just to ditch the Christian calendar in favor of the Jewish calendar, as it exists in the Middle Ages and still exists today. There are a couple of examples for that, or sort of mixed attempts to integrate certain elements of the Jewish calendar. Uh, there are also ideas of um, creating a solar calendar where the first day of 
where the equinoxes and solstices will coincide with the beginning of a month. So to have a calendar that actually represents the, the course of the sun through the zodiac more, more faithfully than, than the Julian calendar would do. Uh, there, are, there are proposals to remove 16 days from the calendar and to move Christmas to the 1st of January, right? I mean, if you can speculate, detach from the actual practicalities, you can have these flights of fancy, and there are plenty of them in medieval sources. Were the reformers of 1582 aware of the difficulties of the reforms in the 14th century? Have they consciously tried to address things through? Um, they, they pay lip service to predecessors, and of course uh, the 16th century uh, produced a plethora of literature which was perhaps more relevant to the debate. Uh, for instance, I believe that Johannes de Termes was probably mostly forgotten in this period. Other medieval authors, uh, you know, they, they're being brought up just to signal, signal that the church has been thinking about this for a very long time. Um, so I'd say on the whole, the Middle Ages is just important to give you an idea of uh, the sort of the vigor behind the debate and how, how clever uh, these medieval authors were. And of course, you know, so, some ideas are introduced at a very early stage and they just passed, uh, passed forward. Uh, so I mean, I, it's hard to, to, to tell what exactly might have been the source that these Gregorian reformers uh, were using. I think it's more a case of you know, different experts uh, um, you know, joining forces and they had all read you know, a huge amount of literature uh, which, which, you know, it's just a, recurrent, a constant recurrence of the same basic concepts and notions. Um, so rather than drawing like a filiation of sources, uh, it's more uh, about recognizing that we have these recurring kernels of ideas uh, that persist for centuries until they're finally implemented in this reform. Um, we have one more minute which, in which I'll abuse my own powers and make a comment. <laughs> sure. Um, you mentioned that in 1436, there was a suggestion to leave the calendars, but to publish a decree and with mnemonics and to attach them to every existing calendar. I just want to note a parallel from Jewish sources, because in the Avignon letter, also from 1430s, that I was discussing in my talk, there's exactly this suggestion. Keep all those reiterative tables, but below each table, just make a note that in years of such and such type, it will not work. So it's exactly the same logistics of correcting calendar as you find in your sources in exactly the same period, which I thought is at least a nice parallel. I don't know how connected this is in reality, but as a parallel, I thought it quite nice. Thank you very much.